1982, video games are taking over living rooms everywhere, and a three-year-old company named Activision is turning out one hit game after another. With simple games like River Raid and Kaboom, Activision establishes dominance in a crowded field. And that's where our design team comes in. They are constantly pushing back the creative boundaries in game design. Pitfall was my sixth or seventh game at Activision, so I'd been doing games at Activision for quite a while. And the way we did video games is we get an idea and we do it. Many of the games have just one or two programmers and must be finished within a few weeks, not months or years. And the fun has just begun. The ending of a video game project is really hard. There's always a deadline. You're always working at least 16 hours a day, usually all-nighters in the last week of the project. In fact, I pulled one project where for six weeks I worked 16 hours a day and then for two weeks 20 hours a day because I had a deadline. With such a demanding schedule, how do the programmers relax between projects? So when we're done, we would decompress a little bit. We'd sit around the lab, we'd play other people's games, we'd scribble on a piece of paper and figure out what we're going to do. Several times I had experimented with a little running man on the television screen. David Crane just wanted to build a game around it because he was really, really fond of that little running man he'd made. There weren't very many games where you actually played as a human. Um, you were always a spaceship or some kind of weird little creature. Most of the characters are their bleeps and bloops. Something in the shape of a tank, a pixelated tank. We really hadn't been doing animated characters where you tried to actually have the thing that looked like a person. And I had a pretty darn good one, but I could never figure out a game to do with it. And so I'd move on to the next game, and I would do a complete game, and then you know, I'm decompressing after the last one, and I said, you know, that little running man, I'll pull him out. And I kept pulling him out of the drawer and playing with him. But it would take almost a year for the running man to finally have some place to run to. Finally, I just flat out said, this is it. I'm going to use this little running man in a game. So on my blank sheet of paper, I drew a little running man, a little stick figure. Well, where is he running? So I drew a path for him to be running on. Where's the path? Jungle's a good place for a path. Drew some trees. Why is he running? He's running after treasures, and he's being chased by whatever. So in about 10 minutes, I had a piece of paper which represented the game Pitfall. After that was a 1,000 hours sitting at a computer to make that happen. But it was 10 minutes for the idea. With a setting, other elements quickly fall into place. I found the way to the gold. Pitfold by Activision. Including a few trend-setting gameplay styles. It was revolutionary in a lot of senses, but I think more than anything, it was the first game to be a platformer. It was the first time you could control a character and jump over things and to swing on things. There was humor, you know, with the, with the little Tarzan yell. That's something you really didn't see in games before. You weren't used to seeing that kind of personality. There were so many things to do. Jump, it was climb, it was avoid things. It was like a living, breathing universe. And the jungle aspect was, of course, the, the big theme of Pitfall. But no one had ever attempted anything like that before. Pitfall introduces its own little treasure. A big thrust of the game was you had to collect treasure. Gold! Ah! <laughs> Did I mention the tar pits? <laughs> and the idea was to get the highest score at the end of the level. And that has, has translated into so many games today, but that was the first time you really collected things. 
An unsuspecting public is welcomed to the jungle in September of 1982. Critics and fans react with excitement to the high watermark that Pitfall has set. It was really exciting when I got it. I uh, saw it over at my cousin's house, and when our parents got it for us, we were just really happy. One thing I really noticed and remembered about the early Pitfall was just the graphics. A lot of the other Atari games at the time had pure black backgrounds or a solid color on the background, and this one had the trees that were drawn there. The crocodiles looked like crocodiles. Everything in the game looked like it was supposed to be. The Atari 2600 was very limited in what it could do, but it really pushed the envelope. I was a huge Pitfall fan. It came out, whatever it was, six months after the Indiana Jones film, and I was still a big, huge Indiana Jones fan, and this was, like, really the opportunity to live that adventure. And, you know, no game before then really did anything quite like that. It was simple and kind of silly looking, just a simple little stick figure guy, but at the time, it went farther, I think, than any other game to really immerse you in an adventure. Pitfall quickly sells millions of and becomes a must-play game. The success of the game ensures Harry will get another ticket to the jungle. The stage is yours. Thank you. Um, that, that video was produced seven or eight years ago for Activision's 25th anniversary by the G4 Television Network, and I love those vintage commercials and all that, that old footage. But I wanted to show that because I was thinking about this group in front of me here, and there are a few people in this audience who played these video games when they were new, not too many. There are probably a few people who didn't play them or maybe didn't know they played a game of mine when they were younger, um, but know a little bit about the history of the video game business. And then there's all the rest of you who weren't born when I made that game in 1982. So I wanted everybody to kind of start from the same place, having seen, um, having seen some of the games that were done in those, in those days. So I'm actually here, I'm gonna talk a lot about Activision, but not the Activision that you know today, um, which after the merger with Blizzard is now the biggest video game company in the world for a second time. We were the biggest video game company in the world at one time also, um, prior to that. Um, but um, again, the Activision of the 1980s pretty much launched an industry and um, when we did that, we, we pioneered a number of, of techniques to make video games. We pioneered the entire industry of a third-party um, software business. And there were a lot of lessons that we learned that made Activision the biggest video game company in the world in those days. And I'm here to kind of remind people of these lessons because they seem to be, they're being lost today. Um, for, the, I'm thinking that there's also two groups here. There are people who are interested in business, in creating a design business, whether it's a video game business or any other kind of design. And there are lessons to be learned from there. So we'll start with what I call the business track for publishers, and again, these are video game lessons, but they do tend to apply to 
companies designing just about anything. And Activision was started by four video game programmers at Atari. I was one of them. We were faceless, nameless engineers in the back of the game lab. And we were producing a creative product that was selling gangbusters, that was selling millions of dollars worth of sales for Atari. So we, uh, we went to the Atari management and said, you know, um, if you look at the sales of this one group of people, the four of us, we made Atari 60% of your entire revenues in video game cartridge sales last year. And you made $100 million last year. And all we're asking for is recognition that what we do is creative. There's, it, there's something about it that is like being an author of a book. So the founding principle of Activision was to recognize the creative talent. And uh, the products that we generated out of those took the world by storm. These are some of the images from the game. Um, I have a slideshow running here of 70 of the 100 games I've published over my career, so that just because they're very colorful and I like to put them up. But, um, recognizing that there is talent involved in creative design in video games was a founding principle of Activision. And it worked very well. It motivated us back in the lab. It caused many people in this room today to say, I want to do that. I want to be creative and be recognized for my talent. Um, one of the issues was, again, we, we didn't like being faceless, nameless engineers in a design lab. And so we decided we would um, indicate the game designer on the packaging. Now, there's another advantage with that. Um, you may find that you like a particular game design from a particular game designer and go back and ask for that designer in the future. Well, that's a pretty good business technique to get people to come to you asking for games. Um, there were two things we did. We put the, the names on the outside of the package and inside the cartridge we had at least one page of sort of a liner notes, very similar to what a book author would have with a um, you know, little, little bit of a bio and a little bit of a discussion about the book. Um, another thing that Activision did that people didn't know about then, don't know about now, is the company awarded gold and platinum cartridges. I have these on my wall, and uh, just like in the record business, they indicate success for selling 500,000 games for gold and a million games for platinum. And it was just a nice way for a company to recognize the successes that you're providing to this particular business. Again, remember, this is the business track. So for people interested in trying to publish creative product, remember these things. They're not being done today, and they worked really well. They made Activision the biggest third-party software developer in the world. Um, just for fun, I've pointed out some of the other firsts that Activision did. Uh, the biggest one is the first third-party publisher of video game software 
First party publishing in video games is a company that makes the hardware console, also makes the games. Nintendo is very successful at this. They make their consoles and they make games and they make a lot of money making games. What Activision did was we said, we don't need to make a console. Atari makes a console. Mattel makes the Intellivision console. Magnavox made an Odyssey console. And Nintendo and all of the console makers came after that. All we needed to do was make games for their console. So there, there are probably very few names besides Nintendo and Sony that you can look at today that are not third-party software developers in the video game business. Um, Activision made all that possible. I'm not saying someone else would have done it if we didn't, but we were the first. Um, I mentioned that if you particularly liked a, a game designer's games, you might go back and ask for them. This is a, uh, a line from a Tom Clancy novel that kind of explained the thinking of those days. Um, I would have people who could swear that they could look at a video game and tell that I had done that video game because of certain techniques that I use, um, the whimsy that I try to put into games and that sort of thing. And people would come, again, asking for a David Crane game, which was really a nice business model for Activision to take advantage of. We also pioneered a concept we called the Design Center concept, and this is another thing that is, is being lost. We had five people in one lab who worked very well together. Uh, we had a good synergy as a group, and we would help each other, we would look at their, each other's games, play them, um, give advice, and that sort of thing. And every game that came out of this Design Center was better because of it. But we had to figure out some way to expand our capabilities. We couldn't have five game designers and no more than that if we wanted more games. And what we ended up doing is we found a group in New Jersey that already worked together very well. It was another small group. And we put them in an office and paralleled our development in California with this in New Jersey. And so now we have 10 game designers, but it's not 10 all in one big room. It is two small core groups that work really well together. And pretty soon we found you know, more and more. And that is how we built the ability to have, to scale our production and our development of video games without losing that group synergy of the core group that we started with or any of these other groups. A very important lesson in trying to expand or you know, multiply your capability. That's a far contrast from what we see today. This is Facebook and I think Rockyou, <coughs> um, social gaming companies. And um, they have dozens if not hundreds of people all in one big building. And that is not a way to create something original. Um, everyone's tripping over everyone else, and you know, it's, it's just not a creative environment, in my opinion. Again, just for fun, some of the other firsts. Everybody in social gaming puts in achievements. You get a little medal, and you get to collect these little medals. Well, on Activision, we would publish a score or a time for a game, 
And if you exceeded that score or time, you could take a photograph of your TV set, send that into Activision, and we would send you a cloth patch that you could sew onto a jacket with a certificate of authenticity. And literally, it was the first achievements in video games. Um, <laughs> we also produced some interesting television commercials. I'm going to run one at this point. Just last night, I was lost in the jungle with Pitfall Harry, surrounded by giant scorpions and man-eating crocodiles. Well, Harry and I just grabbed the van, swung through the trees, and over the tar pits and found the jungle treasure. It was really neat. If you haven't met Pitfall Harry, you're missing the year's most incredible video game adventure. Pitfall for the Atari 2600 and in television. Since I met Pitfall Harry, no other man will do. Pitfall, designed by David Crane for Activision. And as a final first, I'm going to run that same commercial again and see if you can identify this well-known actor who um, was not even credited in this commercial. Just last night. Can anybody tell who that is? <laughs> I'm hearing Jack Black. Yes, it is. It's Jack Black at age 13. So to recap this brief business track on lessons you can learn from the original Activision, um, you value your creative talent. Um, everyone here is here probably as innovators and mostly the creative people. Uh, so of course you all like to be valued as well, I'm sure. But it works out very well financially for a business. Um, Activision is a good example. Authorship, uh, reward for individuals for successes, and um, the intimate groups with groups or with design synergy is another very important concept. I don't know how they get anything done at, in some of these companies with those. I mean, you take the TV monitors away and it looks like it's, it's a high school cafeteria or something. It, I don't, you know, again, how do you work in that? And um, you will innovate at every level of the business just by, you know, trying to follow these same kinds of um, these techniques. It worked in the past. So for the creators, um, what other lessons can we have from the, uh, the good old days? Let's look at Pitfall again. Uh, very successful. Um, I won't go through all those individual items. You can see them there. There was a lot of innovation but it's that last line that really made Pitfall successful. And um, I, can, I, can, I can demonstrate this with another small video. Um, those of you who know Pitfall, you know that sometimes you have to jump over alligators' heads, you have to swing over vines, you have to time quicksand opening and closing tar pits and all these things. The, the reason Pitfall was so successful is it was easy to learn and not too difficult too early to make a person give up. So you have to keep the person engaged in the game without making it so easy it's boring. And that's a fine line. In Pitfall, this is the game, game screen for Pitfall, it, um, it should start automatically, but since it isn't, maybe we can start it with the computer.
No. Try again. All right, we'll give up on that. It was just a simple demonstration of how the first screen of this game has nothing going on. And there's no manual. You don't have to read a 20-page manual to figure out how to play this game. You simply sit down and you pick up the controller. And if you move the controller to the right, the little man runs to the right. Move it to the left, runs to the left. The joystick had a button on it. You press the button, he would jump up in the air. If you press the button while he was moving, it would jump laterally. And you start to practice these skills. You can go up and down the ladder and learn that that's why it's there. And you jump over that log as you're running to the right, and now you encounter a screen that has rolling logs. Oh, now this is a little different. I know I can jump. I know I can jump laterally, but I have to time these moving events. And then the next screen might be the vine that you have to learn how to swing on. Following screen might be the alligators that you have to learn to run over their heads. And you, you get there at your own pace, as it turns out. And um, you learn these skills before you need them, before the game throws you into a situation where it's going to cause you difficulty if you haven't learned them. That's a good, good lesson to any game design. Make it so that it is approachable, easy to learn, don't force a person to read a manual to understand how to play a game. Let them experiment, but don't make it too boring too, you know, too soon. Um, this is an interesting award given to game designers. The first Penguin Award. Um, we all have seen probably the March of the Penguins, the movie, and at the end of the, sea, the breeding season, they all go back and go back to where the the ocean is now starting to unfreeze, and they all stand there, knowing there's fish down there, starving to death, but nobody jumps in. And it's an interesting phenomenon that finally some penguin jumps up there and says, I'm going in, okay? There's food down there. And they all still wait until he surfaces to show that not only did he find food, he wasn't eaten by something else. And then they all jump in. Everyone is divided into one of those two categories. You're either the first penguin or you're the one who stands on the sidelines waiting for the first penguin not to die. And so the Game Developers Choice First Penguin Award awards those people who take that leap. And um, so it's, it's an interesting, uh, interesting award because it separates people from those people who are going to take the risks and make something creative and those who kind of just wait around and see. So, Taking Risks. Uh, Little Computer People is a game many of you know. Um, it was not a game. It was more of a fishbowl. You would interact with this living creature, or seeming life simulation, uh, which was five years before The Sims, by the way. And, um, you know, it wasn't a game. So Activision took a risk and said, this is an interesting thing. I'm going to give it a try. Another risky example, if I had to try to explain to a publisher that I was going to develop a game where you had an alter ego on the screen and with you was this shape-changing blob from another planet who thrives on jelly beans because his planet has no vitamins and you're going to go into the caverns under New York and collect treasure, 
buy vitamins from a vitamin store and then fly off to Blabolonia and battle other creatures to bring vitamins to, you know. If I had to explain that to a publisher, it would never be funded. Um, fortunately, I've had enough successes that when I say I think it would be fun, someone usually funds it. <laughs> um, and technology. Um, one of the things that I used to do with the Atari 2600 is I would figure out some new way to make a graphic image work. And that's the state of the art for a racing car on the Atari. And that's the racing car that I created in a game called Grand Prix. And the technology, the only reason it worked is because I could also say, well, in that case, let me change it from a circular track to a linear track. And now I can make this beautiful car instead of that little creature thing there. So as a recap on the creative track, um, always try to design many hours into play, but introduce the complexity gently. Don't be afraid to take risks and use the latest technology, but the game is the star, not the technology. So this is my concern, is that today's social media companies have ignored all these. and. Um, you know, don't ignore the lessons that have proven to be financially successful. My, you know, my advice to, to any business. Um, I was asked to spend a little time on the future. Um, crowdfunding is really having an interesting impact in the video game business. Uh, we all know about Kickstarter. We know that it's used for funding certain projects. But what it's going to do is it's going to turn the video game business on its ear in some way. It's not going to take over or anything, but the beauty of a crowd-funded video game project is that the game player can come to a project and say, I want that game and I will pay for it in advance. And that gives you the budget to build it. And that takes a person like myself. I don't have to go to a big publisher and convince them that I don't just need to do another, you know, another of the same 3D World War II simulator to have a successful game. I can go to people and say, do you want to see this game? Do you want to see what I could do? And um, I've, I'm out of my time, but there have been two or three or four very successful, you know, examples where the, the video game player sees a project and says, well, that's a game that I want so much so that I'm going to back the project and be a part of its development and um, bypass the publisher entirely. So um, what can I say? That's, that's a little bit on the future. Otherwise, what's next for me is September of this year is the 30th anniversary of Pitfall. So um, as a sneak preview to this group, I haven't mentioned it to anyone else prior to this. I'm currently working on a major development project that will very likely be uh, crowdfunded. And if you have any interest, go to jungleventure.com, sign up, and when there's something I can tell you, and it's not in stealth mode anymore, we'll send out emails. Thank you.